The Anchored City podcast is recorded in Anchorage, Alaska, on the traditional lands of the Denina Athabascan people. I have heard the oldest stories that the wisest man never told. And I cast aside my worries And just went digging for gold And I will scale the highest mountains Looking for the bluest blue But of all the roads I'll ever walk I just, I can't have Welcome to this episode of the Anchored City Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Kiekenfeld. According to an Alaska Behavioral Health Systems Assessment Report from 2016, approximately one in nine adults needed treatment for an illicit drug or alcohol problem, or roughly 62,815 Alaska adults. The cost of all that addiction is upwards of $3.5 billion annually, per the 2019 Update to the Economic Cost of Drug Misuse in Alaska report. With the prevalence of addiction in our state, treatment and recovery from substance misuse might feel like an impossible task on both a personal and collective level. On this episode, I'm talking with Tiffany Hall about what is possible when it comes to recovery. We will talk about her personal story and the work of Recover Alaska. Hall is the executive director of Recover Alaska and the vice chair of the board of the U.S. Alcohol Policy Alliance. Here's our conversation. And there are deserts that I have yet to cross. And I have dreamed of faraway places where imagination just gets lost. And I would search the wide world. Tiffany Hall. I use she, her pronouns. I am a daughter, a sister, a mother, a friend. I am a poet and I love to dance and I'm a social justice advocate. And I am the executive director of Recover Alaska and I'm a person in long-term recovery from co-occurring alcohol use and mental health disorders. Well, thank you so much for letting us know just a little bit about you. And I, I want to just start at the very beginning. So can you tell us a little bit about your growing up years? Sure. I was born and raised here in Anchorage on Denina land. I am the fourth of four children. I have an older sister and two older brothers, and we all are kind of best friends today. I am really lucky um, or yeah, I think a lot of it is luck. <laughs> They're really wonderful. Uh, I always loved attention. And as the fourth, I probably had to be a bit um, outgoing in order to get it. So as a theater kid, I also played a lot of sports growing up. I was never 
great at any of them really, but I often uh, got what I like to call the Rudy award, like good job trying really hard and having a good attitude award. (laughs) Uh, Never the most valuable player, but I had a lot of fun. Uh, We, it was a house full of love and support and laughter. I mention all of that, especially because I am a person in recovery and I, uh, you know, I did really struggle with alcohol for a while and my story is not one of coming from trauma or abuse or anything like that. You know, I was in a really safe environment full of love. Um, yeah, I, I grew up here. I graduated from Bartlett high school. Shout out. Uh, I left for a while, maybe 12 years. I went to school outside of LA. I lived in San Francisco and then in Austin. And I went to grad school in Eugene, Oregon. And then I moved back up here about 10 years ago, maybe a little longer, 12 years ago. Yeah, great. Thanks for giving us a little bit of picture of that. And yeah, like a lot of people here moved out, came back (laughs) and ended Mm -hmm. up you started in a lot of ways. Yeah. You've mentioned being a person in recovery. I wondered if you would share with us sort of what is your addiction story look like? Sure. I started, you know, I come from a very big family, so I'm one of four. My father is one of 10 and we all got together every year. And my drinking habits didn't seem really out of the norm there or out of the norm with my peers in high school. So I started drinking when I was probably about 15. I had had tastes prior to that, but that's the first time I remember sneaking out one night with friends and like, you know, sharing three beers. And I, yeah, I guess I just drank with friends mostly through high school, but by the end of high school and certainly in college started blacking out from drinking, which I've later learned to not be a normal thing and to often be a type of an alcohol use disorder. But at the time, again, it didn't feel outside of the norm for my peers. I also played rugby. I played rugby for 10 years. I started in college and that's a pretty heavy drinking culture. And after college, I had a couple of different jobs, waiting tables in between jobs of doing things like marketing or uh, other communications or fundraising jobs. But I just was often around people who drank like I drank. But by the time I was 25, I had a hard time not drinking. I would give it up every now and then. Actually, when I was in college, uh, I went to the I went to a mental health counselor in college for an incident that happened when I was intoxicated. And he just really wanted to talk about my drinking. And he told me I was alcoholic and that I needed to stop. And I really wanted to talk about this thing that had happened. And he we did not, we did not connect. So I did not go back to mental health counseling for probably 10 years. 
But in order to prove to him and to myself and anyone else who may question it, I used to give up drinking for Lent every year. So I would go 47 days without drinking alcohol. And to me, I thought, oh, that means I don't have a problem because I can stop whenever I want to. And I did that for the rest of my drinking life until I gave it up entirely. And once I gave up all substances for a year, it just went straight edge for a year. I knew I wanted to stop the job I was in and start a new job and kind of figure out what I'm meant to do. And I knew that substances wouldn't help that journey. And so I gave it up for a year. But every one of those times, as the deadline would kind of be approaching for the end of this stint of sobriety, I started to kind of dread it. And I realized that I felt like without this excuse, I couldn't not drink. And a lot of that is social pressure and the social norms around drinking, especially because I was playing rugby and or waiting tables and or, you know, working at events where a lot of people drank a lot, whatever it was, I just tended to be in situations with a good amount of alcohol. And so I would tell myself, okay, this time I'm going to only have an occasional glass of wine with dinner because I really like the taste of it. And that would maybe start out well, but I just couldn't control it. If I had one, I didn't know if I was going to have one or have a million that night. And I didn't know if I was going to drive home or if I was going to wake up in some unknown place. I just never knew. I couldn't predict at all what was going to happen. And my friends, I would talk to my friends about maybe needing to quit drinking. And they would say, well, you don't need to quit drinking entirely. Just moderate. And that is not a thing that I can understand. That is not a thing I can really do. I remember a friend telling me once, oh, yeah, I've had two drinks and I'm feeling kind of tipsy. This is right where I like to be, so I'm going to stop drinking. And I remember thinking that is the most, like, I that was such a foreign concept to me. For me, it was always, oh, if I had two and this feels good, I should probably have a million more because then I'm just going to feel better. Never, never was that true. But my brain just didn't seem to function the same way as some other folks. So eventually, I, when I went to graduate school, I went to mental health counseling. I had decided to give up drinking for grad school for those two years. And after a few weeks of that, I just was having this tightness in my chest and I felt like I couldn't take a deep breath and I was having a lot of anxiety what I later learned to be anxiety and so she helped me understand that I have an anxiety disorder <clears throat> and also that I have an alcohol use disorder and because my understanding of alcohol use disorders at that time was oh well I'm not on the side of the road. I didn't lose my job. I didn't lose my house. I haven't lost my family. I've never been to jail. Surely I don't have, I'm not an alcoholic because that's what I thought it meant. I didn't realize that much like most things in life, it is a spectrum and binge drinking is one of them. You know, there are a lot of different types of alcohol use disorders. So anyway, that was in 2009 and she really helped me with a lot of them. I mean, I credit her with saving my life. She really helped me with a lot of 
unpacking that I had to do and um, yeah, kind of figuring out how to do life as a sober person and not just the absence of alcohol, but how to really get well. Because I, you know, like I said, I had been sober a number of times, but I was never that well. Which kind of leads me to my next question. So maybe we'll flip flip the opposite way. And I'd love to hear your story of recovery. How do you how do you tell that story in your life? Yeah, it has made everything possible for me. It, I mean, it it wasn't very easy at the beginning. I and I personally used AA as my program of recovery. I know that. There are a lot of feelings around the anonymity of that program. And I'm not trying to say that AA is what works for everybody or, you know, I'm not a representative of the program, but that is what worked for me. And I like to say that so that if somebody who is struggling is listening to this, they know that's one option. And now there are many more. For a long time, that was the only option that people really knew about. Now there are so many different programs of recovery that can be as specific as a person would like, or as broad and open-ended. Anyways, that's a whole nother question, but um, yeah, for me, it really meant learning how to, how to live and how to acknowledge and understand my feelings. I think I had been drinking to cope a lot with anxiety and with just anything challenging in my life. And one thing that they say is that, you know, when a person starts drinking or maybe at least starts disordered drinking, their emotional growth can sometimes stop at that point. So you kind of have to pick up where you left off and relearn some of these skills that other people may have learned in their early adulthood. So I spent a good amount of time going to meetings or going to counseling or going to group counseling and trying to do spiritual work and you know trying meditation and retreats and all these different things and I'm really grateful that I did they're all you know everything has been pretty rewarding in some way or another and some things I continued doing and some things I didn't but bigger picture in terms of my story of recovery I feel like that's the only way I have been able to do most of the things I've been able to do for the past 14 years. I don't think I could have gotten as much out of graduate school if I was still drinking. You know, I have traveled internationally by myself, which would not have been a safe choice. And in fact, was not a safe choice because I also did that in my active addiction. And it was not, it was not a safe choice. I, I, own a home. I have a good job. I am a single mother and that's, uh, I'm, I'm single by chance, but I'm a mother by choice. You know, I made the very intentional decision to have a child by myself. I did an Ironman triathlon. I, you know, I feel like so many things that I do today and who I am today wouldn't really be possible if I were still drinking alcohol the way I was. And I I mean, I have to say a lot of that is also privilege, right? But still, I wouldn't have been successful in them if I were still drinking alcohol. 
So the theme for this, and you've used the word possible quite a bit um, in your your talk there about how what recovery looks like for you. We're we're considering this year on the podcast this season, like what is possible. So, like you said, if there's somebody listening who is struggling with substance use, misuse, addiction, how would you answer that question of what is possible um, to that person that might be listening to you on this podcast? Mm. I would say everything, <laughs> you know, I, and I hear this story again and again from my friends who are in recovery or who have even just who have reduced their amount of alcohol usage, you know, not everybody needs to be sober. Uh, but some of us, some of us do, but, you know, I always hear people say, if I could do it, anyone could do it. And just knowing that there is another way to live and knowing that every moment doesn't have to feel hard or, I mean, it's not, I'm trying to think about how to describe this. It's not that I don't still have really challenging things in my life. I certainly do. I'm just able to deal with them now. You know, another pretty common saying in the program is my worst day in recovery is better than my best day in active addiction. And I think part of that is that I'm just not numbing my feelings anymore. So I'm capable of lower lows maybe, but also of higher highs. And when I do go through those lows before, so much of it was around shame and maybe also guilt, but so much shame and self-deprecation or, you know, just the feeling of not being worthy of love or anything. And I don't have that anymore. Even when I make mistakes, because I still do, I still have a temper sometimes, I still say dumb things, you know, but I'm able to recognize that so much more quickly and I'm able to take more accountability for myself and apologize and talk through what I did and try to figure out how to make it right that I don't, you know, even if I maybe regret the way a certain thing happened, I don't have that just intense weight of shame that I used to. I can't remember your question. <laughs> What's possible? It's possible to live without shame. Maybe that's it. I am an external processor. So sometimes I get to the answer through talking things out loud. It's a good way to get through to the answer. That's for sure. <laughs> I think that's good news for a lot of folks that you can live without feeling shame all the time. So I think, thank you for sharing that and, and working that out verbally. That's yeah. It. <laughs> as we, as we talk. Um, I want to switch a little bit to to kind of your professional role now. I heard you speak I don't know, about a month ago or so at the Alaska Humanities uh, Forum's Culture Shift, which, by the way, if people are listening, it's amazing. You should go to Culture Shift. Um, it's super fun. It's really fun. <laughs> um, but you were talking a little bit about the alcohol industry. And would you be willing to give like kind of a little bit of, I know those are pretty mini talks to begin with, but like a mini talk of your mini talk about what you talked about <laughs> um, with, with culture shift last month. 
Sure, I will give it my best shot. Although I will say when I start talking about big alcohol, it is difficult to rein myself in because I would be, you know, I could talk about big alcohol for days and about how I believe they need to be, you know, shut down. Uh, But we'll, I'll try to stay focused here because I'm not, I also don't want the like, I don't want to be perceived as a teetotaler. I know not everybody needs to stop drinking alcohol. I do know that the less you drink, the healthier that is. But I know that to be true with other things that I partake in, like bacon. I eat I eat bacon. I know it's not good for me. I just think people should know. And I think that big alcohol does not, does their best to make sure people don't know the truth about them. So when I say big alcohol, I know that people have heard of big tobacco and big pharma, but don't usually think about alcohol in that same way. And I think a lot about a lot of that is due to our social norms around it. Also due to, you know, alcohol is legal. So is tobacco and tobacco used to be perceived really differently until there was a giant lawsuit against them for covering up the truth. So far, big alcohol has managed to avoid such lawsuits, but they are doing the exact same thing. So when I say big alcohol, I mean there are 14 companies that sell two-thirds of the world's alcohol, and they all claim that they want people to drink responsibly, but even by saying that, they're putting the burden on individuals as though it is an individual's fault and full responsibility for succumbing to the billions of dollars they put into uh, very pernicious marketing every year. And as though it's not an addictive substance, as though they don't really try to get people addicted because big alcohol is making their money off of the people who are drinking what they would say as irresponsibly, the people who have disordered drinking. They would go out of business if people quote, drank responsibly, 30% of adults don't drink alcohol. Another 30% have less than one drink per week. Top 10% of drinkers drink over 10 drinks per night. And a third of big alcohol's profits are coming from those people. They know that alcohol is a carcinogen. It is the third leading preventable cause of cancer, even at just one drink per day. That's not talking about those people with 10 drinks. One drink a day increases your risk for cancer. Alcohol is not good for your heart. It's not good for any aspect of your physical health. All of those studies have been debunked and they know that, and they still, you know, are pushing and pushing and pushing people to try to drink alcohol and telling everybody that everybody is drinking alcohol. And if you want to be smart or sexy or successful, you need to drink alcohol, which are all of the things that alcohol took away from me, right? It's just blatantly untrue. They have long used racism, sexism, cultural appropriation. They purposely prey on minoritized populations. Alcohol was, oh, has in basically every example I've ever read about, been used as a weapon in colonization 
And then they turn it around and say that whomever is colonized also can't, you know, like they, they blame, they always blame the people who they are targeting. And right now, because of the way media has shifted, so it's always good for a company, if they want to make as much money as possible, to target young people and to get that brand loyalty as soon as possible. And because of social media and the rise of so many different things um, with advertising, young people are being targeted younger and younger. Now, it's, I want to say, kids and young teens under 16 have become the most critical entry point for companies trying to find brand loyalty. Youth in the United States see more than three alcohol ads per day, which doesn't even count all of the paid placements on Instagram or other social media where their influencers are getting paid to promote certain brands without even, you know, that all flies under the radar. And big alcohol is allowed to do this because they have a ton of lobbyists. There are so many lobbyists per uh, person, per congressperson in Washington, D.C., that they set and make their own rules. They are in charge of regulating themselves. If they followed their own rules about marketing, there would be one third fewer ads for that that people would see, including young people. And it's estimated that underage drinking would decrease by over 50%. But try to tell somebody that they can't drink alcohol and suddenly, you know, try to try to tell somebody that you want to tax alcohol or you would like to regulate marketing or you would like to simply reduce the number of places people can purchase alcohol. And suddenly you're a prohibitionist. You, you know, there are a lot of assumptions made about what you want and and not much done in terms of policy change because people are so afraid of having alcohol taken away. Okay. Oh, I'm going to say one other thing about it. Uh, what to do. I'm going to say what to do about it. So we know that our youth are seeing one, three ads per day and that there's not a lot that we can do about that. But what you can do is to talk to the young people in your lives. That is the number one prevention method. Talk to them early. Talk to them often. Alcohol is talking to them three times a day. Like we need to talk to our youth often and be really honest with them. What in research we've done, youth say they want adults to be honest. They want to be comfortable being able to have these conversations without just being worried they're going to get in trouble for asking questions or just get told lies or, you know, whatever it is. And don't tell them that they can't drink because it's illegal. Tell them that they can't drink because their brains are still forming until they're 25 and they shouldn't drink before that because it's just so easy to rewire the brains. I know I was one of them. If you start drinking by age 15, you're four times more likely to have an alcohol use disorder in your lifetime. So just encourage them to wait, just wait a little bit. Like you're not going to miss out on any, you know, talk, to, talk to your young people. Okay. <laughs> okay. Off the soapbox. No, but I like where you landed there. We need to have more conversations about the realities, especially with younger folks, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I appreciate that. You're the executive director for Recovery Alaska. 
Um, I, would you mind explaining what does Recovery Alaska do? Sure. Recover Alaska works to reduce excessive alcohol use and harms across the state. That's our mission. And we are not a provider of direct services, so we don't do treatment or prevention services. We work at the system level. And so there are kind of five main areas that we where we operate. We do advocacy. So we passed a bill and, and we worked with some folks from the alcohol industry. When I talk about big alcohol, I'm talking about the giant industry. I'm not talking about every single individual involved. I don't want people to mishear that. So we worked with folks in the alcohol industry and public health and safety. Anyways, we do advocacy. We passed a bill at the state level. We also do work at the local level, either helping communities with information or research or how to even go about putting in something in front of your local government. We also do prevention. We operate a statewide prevention network. And these are folks working in prevention kind of across the range of issues from suicide to domestic violence to child abuse to alcohol and other substances because so many of the risk factors are the same and so many protective factors or things that help are the same. And there's a lot of turnover in those jobs. They're not super well paid. It's really challenging work. And so we have a network to try to bolster the folks in those roles and make sure that we're all sharing resources and supporting each other. We do advocacy, we do prevention, we do access to care work. So we try to let folks know about resources that exist as close to them as possible and at different kind of which level they might be more interested in as well as trying to look at the system again and trying to figure out what barriers might exist for folks and if there's anything that we can do outside of the actual world of treatment to support people, whether that's trying to figure out better transportation or figure out better connections between behavioral health and physical health. We also do research and data work. We And by that, Mostly, I mean, we're collecting data about alcohol from a number of different sources to have it all in one place so people can see the bigger picture, but also reaching out to local communities to figure out what their data needs are and what is maybe missing. A lot of folks in the state don't feel seen in the research that exists because they're from really small communities or just not Anchorage and Fairbanks. And so they usually don't have specific data. And so just trying to help fill some of those gaps. And then the fifth area where we work is in social norms. And that's probably our most visible work. You can follow us on Facebook or Instagram. And we try to normalize sobriety, reduce stigma for folks who are struggling with alcohol and honor and celebrate recovery. And we try to really approach that from a harms reduction point of view. So that just means we are not an abstinence only organization. We know that less alcohol is better for everyone across the board. And how can we help people reach the goals that they are trying to reach? And how can we, you know, create more safe spaces that are still really fun, that are geared toward adults, but that don't involve alcohol? or 
that connect people to their culture because we know how critical that is. And we're a pretty small organization, so we can't do that ourselves. So we try to also offer mini grants to communities around the state, anywhere who would like to host a sober game night or a culture camp or whatever it is. If they're, we don't have huge amounts of money to give away, but we just like to support folks in creating the solutions for their own communities. So if folks wanted to get connected with you to partner with you or to volunteer or whatever, how should they, uh, how should they reach out to get involved with Recover Alaska? I think the best way is through our website, which is www.recoveralaska.org, O-R-G. And you can sign up for our newsletter there because we are pretty small and we don't do direct services. We don't always have a ton of volunteer opportunities, but when we do, we certainly will put them into our newsletter as well as on social media. So we're Recover Alaska on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube. And we try to keep people looped in that way. There also is contact information on our website. So please, anyone should feel free to call us or email us at any time with any questions. We get a lot of calls asking for support for themselves or for a loved one or how to talk to an employee or, you know, we get the full gamut. So please don't hesitate. So my final question is one that I ask uh, pretty much everybody that comes on the podcast. And that is in the middle of all the work that you're doing, um, is there a spiritual or self-care or mindfulness practice that you do that helps keep you centered in the work that you're doing? That's a great question. I should listen to every podcast you've ever had so I can get all of the tips. Uh, I think, you know, when I think about being centered in my work, that just means I need to be centered in me. And maybe that's because I work in recovery, but I think more it's because we at Recover Alaska, we really strive for a person-centered work culture where wellness is top of mind for everyone. We we encourage other people to take care of themselves and to do a lot of different things for wellness. And so we try really hard to lead by example and practice what we preach. And so for me personally, I do some individual things. I write every morning when I wake up. Sometimes it's really deep. Sometimes it's whatever bizarre dream I had the night before, but I just write every morning. I take baths. I try to get outside every day. I used to do a lot more exercise, uh, but I am a single mother of a toddler. So now exercise mostly looks like chasing her around. I also used to do a lot of meditation, even for just five minutes. I noticed such a difference with that. That is not in my kind of rotation these days, maybe just where I'm at in my life, but it's been super helpful to me throughout the past 15 years. And then just to also put out there at work, we do weekly check-ins. Every staff meeting we have, we all check in first, and it can be about what you did over the weekend or how what you're dealing with in your family life or however deep or not deep you want to go. But it's a really nice practice to get to know everyone and to make sure that we are asking each other, how are we really doing? Especially because we work so much on Zoom these days. 
And then monthly, we have open meetings for brainstorming, anything that anyone wants to talk about related to work or not. We make space for that monthly and quarterly. We do retreats with our staff. And sometimes that's very purposefully a wellness activity. We've done a sound bath or guided meditation. And sometimes it's doing an escape room and having fun together and making sure that, you know, we're all keeping keeping some joy with us. I, I love that you have practices that are sort of daily and weekly and monthly, and then also individual and group, because we often start thinking about mindfulness or wellness in like one particular way or in a certain way. And I like that you sure. have spread out in lots of different ways. So I think that's a really important thing for folks to hear. Yeah. Well, it's so easy also to get down on myself. Oh, I'm not taking care of myself. But if it's also built into the greater group and it's, oh, this is on the calendar every month, like it or not, it's a nice accountability, <laughs> at least for me. So thanks, Steph. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Well, Tiffany, thank you so much for being willing to share your story and share a little bit about what this looks like, um, what what's possible um, when it comes to addiction. So I really appreciate you taking the time to do that. Yeah, thank you very much for asking me to be on. I really appreciated getting to have the conversation. Thank you. Tiffany Hall for joining me and sharing about her story and what is possible in the area of addiction and recovery. Until next time, I'm Joel Kiegenfeld. Be good out there. Thank you so much for listening. We're grateful for you, our listeners. If you are grateful for what you're hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen and recommend us to your friends. Those are small things, but they make a huge difference. The Anchored City Podcast is a production of the Anchorage Urban Training Collaborative. The mission of the collaborative is to train the heads, hearts, and hands of urban leaders to love their city and seek its peace. When we say peace, we mean a desire to see a world where all things are the way they're supposed to be for all people. Find us online at anchorageutc.org or on social media at anchorageutc. Resources used to make this episode can be found in the show details. Our theme music is by Anchorage's own Monica Lettner. Mm-hmm.